When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. I'm Ian McGarry and of course joining me is our ever-present Duncan Castles to bring you up to date with all the news. On today's pod, we're going to ask... Can Neymar escape his PSG prison? Paul Pogba, despite a wonderful performance at Old Trafford at the weekend, still puts a question mark over his future. We have also asked who had the best debut at Old Trafford in that Manchester United turnsink of Chelsea. And of course, we couldn't do a pod without VAR. It's supposed to be the saviour of decisions in football, but yet again, controversy has prevailed. And the normal Monday pod will bring you its heroes and villains right near the end. Duncan, first with the news, as always, I understand you've got an update on Neymar's future. What's going to happen? Yes, um, he's still, as you say, trying to get that escape from Paris. Um, things, matters have advanced in that, um, as we've been telling you for several weeks, um, Paris Saint-Germain have been trying to find uh, an out for Neymar, Qatar being ready to, to sell the player. They now are talking openly about there being advanced um, discussions with other clubs. They have two candidates, um, as again, as we told you previously, Barcelona, um, where Neymar would like to go, Real Madrid, who are now openly um, involved in that pursuit. We said a long time ago that Real Madrid would stand back um, from it because they didn't want to be seen to be losing the battle. They would only get publicly involved if they were confident they could secure the player. And I think that's where we are now. Why are they confident they can secure the player? Well, Paris Saint-Germain do not want to sell to Barcelona. They basically told Neymar, we will let you go, um, but we do not want you going back to that club. We don't want to deal with that club. And not being happy with the, the offers that uh, Barcelona made to them, basically a proposal of 70 million euros plus a choice of various um, surplus to requirement players, including Philippe Coutinho. Um, they've not been happy that Barcelona have agreed personal terms with Neymar without them giving the club permission to speak to him. Um, Madrid for, uh, for Paris Saint-Germain's far more acceptable way of resolving this situation. They've have been in uh, very advanced negotiations with Madrid over a deal between club and club on this uh, transaction. Uh, I'm told that last week Madrid got extremely close to uh, securing an agreement with Paris Saint-Germain um, for a substantial cash sum plus a player. They've, they've um, similar to Barcelona, they've offered lots of the players in their squad who they've been trying to get out of the squad this summer to PSG. Um, Gareth Bale obviously being um, a clear candidate as a player they'd like to get rid of and, and hoped PSG would take. My information is that the offer that's most interesting to uh, PSG is that of 160 million euros plus Luka Modric in exchange for Neymar. Um, there's lots of interesting elements alongside this. Um, we reported on the podcast, I think, in March that Madrid uh, would push hard for Neymar this summer. Um, during my talks with people involved in this last week, I discovered that Neymar had, in fact, agreed personal terms with Madrid in February of this year on a move back to um, La Liga. He then, I'm told, subsequently called Lionel Messi, having put that agreement in place with Real Madrid, and asked Lionel Messi if he could intervene with the Barcelona board to see if he could get him back, get Neymar back to Barcelona. And the situation has progressed since then. 
in that uh, Barcelona listened to Lionel Messi, as they always do, and had and have gone down the line to try and make that deal happen. They have, uh, as we've you know detailed and, and quite extensively in the podcast, they've come to a personal agreement with Neymar. Um, Neymar has interestingly accepted a pay cut to go back to Barcelona. Um, Neymar's been over, or his family have been over in Barcelona searching for houses for him. He's made it quite clear that's where he, he wants to go back to. But the club-to-club agreement with PSG, not there. So you now have a situation where um, Neymar, I'm told, is still insisting that he wants to go to Barcelona. PSG are saying, we will let you leave, um, but we won't let you go to Barcelona. Uh, Madrid have an agreement with with Paris Saint-Germain on transfer fee and exchange of players, which is acceptable to PSG. Neymar had previously agreed to go to Madrid um, on the same salaries at at PSG and then tried to shift that to Barcelona. I think that the outcome that looks most likely here is that he will end up at Real Madrid. He'll be forced into a choice of stay at Paris Saint-Germain with the fans telling you, literally telling you where to go. uh, working for a coach who's not entirely convinced you should be there anymore, working for owners who've been unimpressed with the way you've, uh, you and your, your father have behaved yourselves while at the club, or take the out that's available to go to one of the biggest clubs in, in world football, a club that's courted him for years, um, and, uh, and, and go to Madrid this time rather than Barcelona. That's the way it looks at the moment. But there are some, obviously, other complications involved in getting the the deal over the line. Two things strike me as crucial in this particular negotiation, Duncan, with regards to how it's going to um, conclude. One, as you made reference to, Paris Saint-Germain fans openly protested against Neymar during um, last weekend's uh, Ligue 1 match with Nîmes. Uh, They had banners saying, get out. They were singing that he was a son of a, a word we can't use for our younger listeners' sake. Um, and also even um, our old friend Tam Tuchel didn't exactly take Neymar's side to defend him and indeed said, I understand why the fans are upset by his actions and his words, but for the moment he remains a Paris Saint-Germain player. Until that's resolved one way or the other, then we must remember that. Now, I think it's untenable, in fact. I think it's incontrovertible that Neymar has to leave Paris Saint-Germain this summer. And I think the club itself has now um, effectively settled upon that it's got to be the outcome, regardless of what the deal and the cost is and everything else. Of course, the problem with transferring the most expensive player in the world is he's the most expensive player in the world. (laughs) So you have to get something back in the region of what you paid for him to save face, as well as, um, I, I guess, improve your own squad, whether it's Luka Modric or someone else. Now, the second issue that I see with this is reports this morning in Spain have suggested that the friction between Real Madrid coach Zinedine Zidane and President Florentino Perez are bubbling, if not boiling over, with regards to transfer policy. Zidane has its been reported, been, let's just say, excused from his press conference duties on two occasions already uh, in pre-season on the basis that, and this is quoting this particular article in uh, the Spanish uh, Sports Daily AS, um, he's, it's, it's very easily sensed that he is stressed and that there is irritation about the position he has between uh, himself and the president. Now, we know that Zidane has been central to Madrid's pursuit of Paul Pogba at Manchester United because he sees Pogba as more of um, a crucial link and fulcrum player to what he sees as the future of the Real Madrid team than he does to the recruitment of the more, let's just say, inconsistent, uh, slightly scatty and certainly... Um, not reliable at this moment in time, Neymar. So we've got a position now where there's a bit of a standoff. The president, who, as we know, is effectively omnipotent at Real Madrid, is backing the signing of Neymar. The coach is resisting it and asking for Pogba. How is this going to play out? It just seems to me like, you know, something's going to give Duncan. 
it's messy on so many levels. Um, I thought he was. I thought he was on the Neymar side. <laughs> yes, and that, that's one of one of the levels where it is messy because you've got. You're right. The president of Real Madrid wants to sign Neymar. The coach does not want Neymar in particular. In fact, he already has um, his most uh, important signing of the summer, Eden Hazard, who plays in exactly the same position as Neymar, and he needs to strengthen in midfield. Um, the president of Barcelona isn't particularly keen on, on signing Neymar. Um, they've already signed Antoine Griezmann. They have um, two other very good attackers. From a sporting perspective, it doesn't make particular sense to load their wage bill um, with Neymar. Um, and they have, as we, we told you last week, they have a salary cap issue. Um, La Liga salary cap sets a maximum level that they can spend on salaries, agents' fees, other recruitment measures, coaches' uh, salaries in a season. And Barcelona are at the limit and have to make room to get Neymar into the squad. So it creates a financial problem. But the captain of the club, the figurehead of the club, wants that deal to happen and is pushing um, Barcelona to, to make it happen. And they have to um, at least uh, look as though they're making a strong enough effort um, that they are satisfying Messi's requests um, for them to try and get Neymar back. Um, if, they, if they can come up with a reason why they weren't able to do it in the end that satisfies Messi, you suspect that might be the happiest outcome as far as Barcelona are concerned. They're probably also looking at Madrid and thinking, um, Neymar going into that dressing room might not actually be a help to them. It might be a hindrance to them because the coach over there doesn't want him. And they've just signed Ed Nazar to play in that position. Um, and you know, let, let's add an addition to this. Real Madrid also have a salary cap issue to deal with. So they have to find space for Neymar. And remember, they will be paying him more money than Barcelona will because they've agreed to maintain his salary at PSG. Um, whereas he's accept, is ready to accept a pay cut to go to, to Barcelona. So um, it's a bizarre situation in many ways because it doesn't really seem to be uh, being driven by a, a sporting argument at either club. It's, it's a political argument or the satisfaction of the desire of, of the president or the satisfaction of the desire of the, of the key player. And then Paris Saint-Germain, you talk about the, the, the pride and the PR aspect. Yes, that is central. Um, Paris Saint-Germain have come to the conclusion that from a sporting perspective, Neymar is bad news and they want him out and they're doing the rational thing, which is trying to get him out on the best terms available to them. But because they are owned by Qatar and, the, and his purchase was a symbol of pride for Qatar, they don't want to let him go to Barcelona and they don't want to let it be seen that he is the man making all the decisions in this move. They don't want to be bullied around by Neymar in in the exit process. So Pride, although they've made that sporting decision, let's get them out, it has to be completed in the right fashion to suit them and to suit their, uh, the, the way they perceive themselves and the way they, they want Qatar to be perceived on a world stage. So it's in many ways um, an utterly bizarre transaction with so many uh, things happening which are actually contradictory to what you'd expect to be happening if you were making decisions purely on the basis of what's best for a football team and how do we um, spend our substantial resources on improving our chances of uh, winning on the pitch. Does the dance position come into question, Duncan, here? Because we talked a year ago, uh, in fact, more than a year ago, we talked about um, how people at Real Madrid, the executives, those closest to the dance, saw him burning out and they expected his resignation, which some people apparently didn't. But that is what transpired. And nine months later, he comes back to the club because they made such a mess of appointing two managers to replace him who couldn't do it. And now it looks like he's under a bit of stress again. He's under a lot of pressure. He's not getting what he wanted. He's not getting what he was promised. I mean, well, first of all, I'd say the question, as I always ask, if you're going to sack a manager, who are you going to get in to replace him? Um, and is Zidane going to be there for you know the whole season? Do, can you see him actually leaving the club um, 
before the season's complete, if not before it started? Uh, I don't see him leaving before it started. I don't think it's quite got that bad yet. I can definitely see him leaving during the season before it's completed. Um, but more importantly, talking to people who, whose focus is on these kind of uh, changes within top-level football, it is very much taken for granted now that Zidane is in an extremely difficult position and is one of the, um, the, the major uh, top-level football club posts that you can expect to open up um, at the latest by the end of this coming season. You know, the, 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 the individuals who are considered to be under threat uh, in European football at present are Zinedine Zidane, Lully Gunnar Solskjaer, Tom, Tom Tuchel and um, the uh, Bayern Munich coach uh, Niko Kovac. Those are, the, those are the positions that are at risk and, and people are targeting uh, and, and thinking um, they, those clubs will need a high-level coach at some point in the not-too-distant future. And, and Zidane's situation is, is really obvious because he was brought back mid-season to fix uh, the errors uh, created by him choosing to leave the club at a point in which, uh, after a season in which Florentino Perez had been preparing to move him out anyway, I think we forget that, um, that Perez hadn't been happy with Zidane in, in his final season, had been, and been readying for a replacement at that stage. So Zidane was brought back and he was convinced to come back because Florentino said, I will give you control over transfers. I will let you change, rebuild the squad. I will give you more money to spend than any coach has had for years at this club. You're getting... Um, at least 200 million euros of the budget to yourself to spend. And the window's not even closed, and Florentino is now saying, well, actually, uh, I want to control the most important signing of this, this window. Neymar's available. We can do it. I want him. Um, and you can just get on with it. That's where, that's where the money's going if I can make that deal happen. Uh, and you coach the team. And, and you can see from some of the things that Dan has been saying when, when asked about players who are in the squad, who he doesn't want to be in the squad, such as Bale or James Rodriguez. Um, you can just look at his comments. You can see he's unhappy with those players being there. And he's certainly not the man who's in charge of recruitment in the way he was supposed to be when he took that job back. And, and those situations rarely end well. Well, Duncan, you mentioned the fact that um, Neymar recruitment, his recruitment to Real Madrid would, you know, kind of contradict the fact they've already bought Aiden Hazard for 130 million uh, this summer. But of course, Gareth Bale comes into that same position, stroke, can, uh, you know, the maelstrom that's happening in Madrid. But another one that we just can't ignore is is Paul Pogba, who, despite starring in um, a 4-0 demolition of Chelsea in the opening weekend of, of the Premier League, uh, gave an interview to French Radio, um, uh, RMC, who are a very, very dependable source of information. And in this case, you can't uh, debate the um, accuracy of the, the actual reporting because it's Paul Pogba speaking himself, in which he said, there will always be a question mark about my future at Manchester United. Now, we know, and we've just spoken about briefly, the possibility of Pogba going, still going to Real Madrid in this window, given that the European transfer window closes on September 2nd. Rumours persist that Juventus will make another big signing before that window closes as well. And we know that Mina Raiola, his agent, is certainly briefing some people in the media that Juventus, a return to Juventus, is a viable possibility for Pogba. Having watched the game um, yesterday uh, on Sunday, Duncan, um, what's Pogba playing at? He, you know, apart from football, obviously, he has a great game. You know, he sets up two goals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, everyone's you know fawning over him, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, most people are, and uh, then he decides to, in the aftermath, throw everything back into the melting pot and say, "Well, you know, might not still be here this season, so let's just see how it goes." Well, I'm not sure he had a great game. I think he had a typical Pogba game, which has elements of genius, um, including you know one of one of the passes to set up uh, 
uh, Marcus Rashford go, um, combined with elements of, of being a, a liability in midfield. And, you know, it's no coincidence Chelsea had so many opportunities in that first half and, and throughout the game um, because United were still defensively weak. And a reason they're defensively weak is people, when Pogba plays that position uh, as one of two in front of the back four, um, there are holes for the opposition to exploit. And he also, you know, he gives the ball away in situations where he shouldn't give the ball away. He did that. He had a good performance. On overall, he certainly comes out, came out of the game with plaudits. Um, and you're right, he comes out of the game with plaudits. The start of the season, generally, you could say it was good, um, good for him. You, I think you'd add a little caveat about the penalty kick-taking. I think it's interesting that Solskjaer decided to give penalties to Marcus Rashford. Um, when that had been Pogba's um, domain last season. Um, so you'd ask why he's chosen to do that, although from a football perspective it probably makes sense because I think Rashford is a better penalty kick taker than Pogba. But um, in the context of you want to retain him at the club and you want to shut him up and you want to keep him focused on playing because you've told him he's not getting out, it's a strange thing to do. But I think, again, this is Paul Pogba. Paul Pogba thinks he's the most important individual at that club. He thinks he's the most important individual for him. He has an agent who tells him that he's the best player in the club and should be um, the best player in the, in the world before too long and that he can get him where he wants to be, which is Real Madrid. You know, All of these things are clear. All of these things have been stated by Paul Pogba that, um, that he wants out and, and he would like uh, to be elsewhere. Manchester United have clearly done their transfer business this summer with the intention of retaining him at the club. You know, they, they've allowed two experienced midfielders to go in, in the last two windows and they have added no midfielders. And they're definitely light in the midfield department as it stands. If they were to lose Pogba in these last few weeks of the European window, they would be in you know, a seriously weak situation because he has the main point of creativity in, in that midfield. So as far as Manchester United are concerned, this is dead. They will not sell the player. Um, they made the decision to retain him. They expect him to be central. And Solskjaer has, has talked about him being central. I think he talked also about him, uh, the possibility of him captaining the club again recently. So that, that shows you where United stand. And what you see when Pogba says the things like this is what Paul Pogba thinks of himself and, and his absolute inability to um, concentrate on the key element, which is performing on the field, performing for the team he's at at the time. OK, maybe it's admirably honest of him to say what he thinks in that post-match interview, but it's not the time for it. The, the transfer isn't going to happen. Um, I think even if he was to go and strike and to push for the transfer, I think Manchester United would hold him now. So now is the time to perform and make sure he gets where he wants to be in a year's time because he has an exceptional season for Manchester United and demonstrates that he has the value um, to be worth uh, being a, a principal target for a Juventus, a Real Madrid or another major club. Interesting you mentioned the captains of there, Duncan, because um, a source close to the United dressing room told me last week that uh, Pogba was very, very annoyed by um, David De Gea speaking publicly about wanting to become captain and, you know, the New Deal would confirm his... Uh, basically, he would almost retire at Old Trafford and therefore being captain would be something he'd be greatly honoured by and Pogba was very annoyed by the idea that a goalkeeper would replace... Um, him as obviously United's best player in his own mind and uh, also the most influential player uh, as captain. Um, before we just move on to a bit of analysis of that United Chelsea game though, it would be remiss of us because lots of you have been asking about what's going to happen to Paolo Dybala with um, all of the um, chat during the uh, window, the Premier League window, England, window in England being open with um, Tottenham Hotspur and Manchester United. Um, I can give an update on this, and that is that Dybala's representatives met with Paris Saint-Germain in the last five days, and that negotiations are ongoing, which would take Dybala to Paris, 
um, you'd have to think, you'd have to think as a replacement for our troubled Brazilian superstar stroke spoiled child, um, as our great friend Julio told us uh, a couple of weeks ago on the, the podcast. Um, they would certainly have no problems paying the salary um, that we uh, denoted last week, as well as the fact that um, Dybala has been warned, and this is a slightly strange one, Duncan, warned that if he doesn't leave the club, doesn't leave Juventus, then there is no guarantee that he'll be included in their Champions League squad. Now, is this a bluff by Juventus, do we think, in order to get him out? Or, or do you think that they are seriously considering leaving out one of their most talented players um, in order to effectively force his transfer somewhere else? If they definitely want to sell Paulo Dybala, they need to raise revenue um, to pay for uh, the the additions they've already made to the squad, not this, not just this summer, but the previous summer. And Dybala has been slated for sale for a while. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've told you through all of this that Dybala wanted to stay at Juventus. Um, he was only really interested in leaving Juve if it was to one of the major clubs, Madrid, Barcelona, were the two he targeted. It'd be interesting to see whether he finds the idea of going to Paris Saint-Germain as Neymar's replacement an attractive one. You know, but in principle, that would seem a reasonable um, option for him. But it's clear Juventus are driving this. Also interesting in, in the way that Maurizio Sarri's been talking about this, um, because we, we told you in the podcast, um, I think about a month ago now, that, that Sari actually was quite happy with Dybala remaining in the squad and he felt that he could use him as the central striker playing a sort of nine and a half role um, in some games. And uh, it's certainly not him who's driving this, but Sari talking about Dybala over the weekend said, I can talk about Paolo all I like but the market goes in a certain way and then what I've, whatever I say counts for nothing. I think he has the right characteristics to play as a false centre forward, but in any case we have to cut six players from the Champions League list. Our situation is difficult, almost embarrassing, because we run the risk of leaving out players of a really high level. We, it's a situation we have to resolve and it's not just about the decisions made by coach or club. I think from that you can see basically Sari saying, this has got nothing to do with me. I'm not making these decisions and I'm not happy that I'm in a situation where we've got a squad list issue um, and I'm not in control of which players go in and out. Um, I think that, that would be my reading of what Sari's saying. And, um, and I think it emphasises what, what you're reporting, that Juventus are, are pressuring the player to go because they're the one he is the one they know they can get a substantial transfer fee for. Very true. And as I said, 2nd of September is deadline day in Europe, but I don't expect to see many yellow ties, um, maybe in Sky Italy perhaps, but let's just wait and see. We'll certainly bring you news of that as and when we get it. Let's move on to... Um, the fact that the Premier League season kicked off this last weekend gone by. And interestingly, Duncan, um, well, from, I think that um, despite the fact that Liverpool um, had a great, big, well, very uh, big win over Norwich City on Friday night, and then Manchester City did the same to West Ham, it was Manchester United versus Chelsea which just made all the headlines. Um, clubs who we know and we've discussed on numerous occasions, um, have fallen down the pecking order of English football. Chelsea, slightly less so than Manchester United. Uh, debuts at Old Trafford for uh, United's new uh, signings, uh, Harry Maguire, obviously, in central defence, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, right back, and also, of course, um, Daniel James coming on late in the game and scoring um, a debut goal. However... I would suggest, and those of you who were privileged to see uh, Jose Mourinho's debut on Sky Sports for this particular game as a pundit, I would suggest, Duncan, that Jose had the best debut at Old Trafford in terms of his first appearance as a pundit on Sky Sports. Uh, I know you've been looking through some of the uh, things that Jose was saying. What was your um, interpretation of that? Were you, were you entertained? Did you think that um, he was very fair? Or did you think he was having a bit of fun as well? I think, as usual, he, he, he likes to have fun um, when he's doing these analyst jobs. I think he's, 
like anyone who, who listens to him can see he's very good at it. He's very good at breaking games down um, to core elements and, and communicating what they are to an audience. Um, I think that, you know, you see some of his skills as a manager in the in the way he um, he understands football and can express it to people quickly. Um, some amusing comments when asked about uh, who he thought could win the league. Uh, his response was Man City, Tottenham, Liverpool and Man City B team, um, which I think was, was quite an, an amusing way and an accurate way of, of putting things. Also, but also I think what was most telling was the way he introduced himself on, on Sky Sports and, and said, I don't want to be here very long. I'd rather not be here. It's interesting for me, but um, the sooner I'm back in the dugout, it's better. And, and that's, uh, I think that's the core element of where Mourinho is. He's, he's very frustrated that, uh, that he's not managing a football team at the start of the season. He expected to be managing a football team. He has had to be advised by people close to him to not jump at jobs he's been offered, um, where the finances in particular are very good and uh, and wait for the the right opportunity at a club where he will be able to win things and and compete for the Champions League which is what he you know he, he has a burning sense of having to prove himself again when he gets back into work um, and he wants to be at a club where he can prove himself again do you think it was interesting that um I certainly did. I'm sure uh, some of the people who I'm about to mention will have done as well, that um, he did spend quite some time in his last few months as Manchester United manager defending himself against, um, as you used to say, legends of the club, like Paul Scholes, uh, Jamie Redknapp, uh, who was an officer, Manchester United legend, but uh, Gary Neville to a degree, Jamie Carricker to a degree, um, who criticised him for either his attitude or his team selections or the way that the team was playing. And yet there he, he went in with both feet raised yesterday and criticised his own former um, star midfielder, Frank Lampard, for his team selection and uh, the way he set his team up, as well as even criticising Manchester United to a certain degree as well, despite winning 4-0. I, I, I thought it was highly amusing, and I think um, Josie always delivers uh, these kind of criticisms with a, a grin. He's like the kind of grinning assassin. Um, <laughs> but, but you're right, I, I think the fact that you said, well, the less time I'm here, the better, was kind of uh, him effectively setting down the guidelines uh, for what he was about to say. Yeah, and look, y you could... If you want to say he's hypocritical in being um, aggressive in his critique of managers when he's in an analyst position, I, I guess his response would be the one that he always gives or always gives when criticising analysts and saying these guys are um, are happy to sit in the studio and take a lot of money to watch football and they're always right because they can never be proved wrong and they don't want to be in the dugout. Um, whereas he does want to be in the dugout and he is prepared to be in the dugout. If you want to pick Mourinho up on his criticism that um, Lampard made a mistake by playing too many young players at Manchester United, I think, I think it's a pretty hard one to contradict. You know, Chelsea did start well. Um, they should have been ahead. Uh, the, they created a lot of chances in the first half. Uh, hit the woodwork twice. Um, probably should have been up even though Manchester United scored from a penalty at half-time. Um, and I think if you look at the various, you know, Harry Maguire, Solskjaer talking about the, the game and saying that they rode their luck post-match, it, it holds up to that. So, um, yes, the, the, the start of the game was fine, but what happened once um, things went against them is pretty typical of what happens when you play younger players. In, in those circumstances, they have the potential, they have the ability, but it's very easy to see them drop off when things go wrong for them. Um, and they're not used to uh, coming through these difficult situations and, and playing at venues like that. Um, I think uh, the, you know, the argument that uh, if Conte was, was uh, fit enough to be on the bench, he should have started the game is also a fair one. Um, that was clear weakness of Chelsea. Um, 
that uh, Jorginho was as Jorginho has been in, in almost his entire team time in English football um, susceptible on the break not good defensively and, and you're trying to cover for a defence that has um, Christensen and Zuma at the heart of it and Aspilicueta on the right which looks weak and I, I think you know that's going to be uh, a fundamental problem for, for Lampard's Chelsea going forward in that his best defender now is, is Rüdiger, who was unable to play because of because um, he wasn't quite fit enough to start at Manchester United. Who do you pair him with? Um, where is the experience in that defence? If you're going to put young players in, put them in away from the defensive areas has generally been my experience in, in, in football. It's the Defence, central defence in particular, is a hard skill to pick up uh, at a young age. And if you don't have a leader in that pair, um, you tend to make m mistakes and errors and get caught out in the way that um, Chelsea were at Old Trafford and, and um, caught in the break and, and end up with a scoreline which isn't representative of the way the general quality of, of play the team had in the game. Um, so... I don't think you can argue with Mourinho's assessment of where Chelsea went wrong at Old Trafford on, on Sunday. Now, I know it's early, early, I say early, it's the first weekend of the Premier League season, so we can excuse the optimism and enthusiasm of fans, etc., etc. But reading some reports this morning, Duncan, um, which were hailing Harry Maguire as the new Rio Ferdinand, I found slightly difficult um, to uh, see the reality of that after just 94 minutes uh, in a Manchester United shirt, given what Rio Ferdinand achieved as a Manchester United player. Um, I think he had a, a decent game. I don't think he, you know, he didn't do that many things wrong. Um, and I also think that Juan Basaka played very well, uh, particularly um, in periods in the latter in the first half and then the second half. But Daniel James's first touch um, before he actually scored his goal was the stuff of schoolboy error, and then he gets the break. Not absolutely not, um, you know, depriving him of the luck that he he got when the ball deflects off and beats Kepa for his goal, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I do think the hyperbole was maybe just a touch too much with regards to the rebirth of Manchester United and this squad and the three signings and everything else. And, of course, we also had uh, the Glazers Out banner flown across Old Trafford, which didn't receive um, as much media attention as it might have done um, had, of course, United uh, not achieved that result. And I do think that um, there's a, you know, as always, I guess, with big clubs and after one game of the season, there's always a, a seductive side to say, this is it, they're back type thing. Was that the, the mood that you interpreted as well? Look, it's an excellent result. You can't argue with 4-0 um, in your first game against uh, one of the teams you're competing with for a Champions League place. It's a great start. It's what they were looking for. Um, they looked fit, which Solskjaer has been emphasising, and it doesn't surprise me that they're fit because he's worked them extremely hard in, in pre-season. So you would expect them to come out of the blocks um, looking stronger in opponents. The question mark is, when you use that kind of training regime, does it come back to bite you later in the season with muscular injuries, as we saw under Solskjaer um, when he had that you know, half season and a bit in charge and, and he put them through a, basically a pre-season within the season and, uh, and ended up with problems going. The, the rest of the season will be the, the test of that part. Maguire and Wan-Bissaka, definite upgrades in defence. Um, no surprise there, and they should be upgrades given the, the fees that, that were paid for them. Maguire, the new Rio Ferdinand, on the basis of that performance, um, well, that's just you know absurd hyper, hyperbole, isn't it? It's, um, he played well, but he wasn't exceptional. Um, Manchester United defend as a team, um, so you can't blame all the defensive statistics on one player. But um, if you look at the statistics in that game, Chelsea had 18 shots to Manchester United's 11, seven on target. Um, they had two big chances. They hit the woodwork twice, nine shots inside the box. David De Gea was back 
on pretty much his top form, had seven saves, several of them very good ones. So first clean sheet since February for Solskjaer, great. But anyone looking at that as a football analyst on a, you know, on a rational level will say it wasn't a 4-0 win, realistically, and it wasn't a clean sheet performance realistically and you know just have to look at Solskjaer's own comments on the game, Maguire's comments, things uh, that Peter Schmeichel for example were saying after the match to see that's where it was um, but you know it's a great start and it gives them confidence. You'd also have to say everything fell for them in that game and that Chelsea started the better team with most of the possession. They gave them a goal on the break with a defensive error from you know that inexperienced or probably not up to standard backline um, that they have. Uh, Jorginho and Zuma combining to hand them a penalty. Um, that allows uh, Solskjaer to play on the counter-attack and, and, and play his defence deeper, which the team is well suited to do because they're designed around pace. They still don't manage to put the game to bed until well into the, the second half. Um, arguably, there was a, a, a foul by Maguire and Tammy Abraham uh, in the build-up to the crucial second goal. Um, you can see that as good defending because it's taking advantage of the fact that Premier League don't really penalise players in those situations. But Maguire had his, you know, his arms wrapped around Abraham on the edge of the box, just outside the box, no foul given. They score on the counter. Um, but it, it kind of all fell for... Uh, in terms of the way you would want the game to go, it fell for Solskjaer and it fell for his new players. And the test obviously is going to be when things go against them, um, how they respond and what their, what their answers are in, in those situations. Um, and, you know, looking at the midfield in particular, you do get the sense that um, there's still fundamental problems there. So at the end of the first uh, round of games, we have Manchester City, Manchester United at the top of the Premier League with uh, Liverpool in third and the mighty Brighton of Albion in fourth. <laughs> <laughs> on alphabetical basis, which is always, always the one that I would turn to, um, given you've got a team that starts with B. Um, so uh, that's all very uh, well and good, Duncan. But who who impressed you? You watched all the games, obviously, over the weekend. Who who do you think put the most impressive performance amongst the title contenders? I mean, apart from Brighton, obviously. <laughs> What odds did you have on Brighton for the title when you were doing well, they were, well, Manchester well, United last week? Well, Brighton were two to one to go down, and five hundred to one to win the Premier League. So you you make your own mind up on that one. Because <laughs> I went for the value bet, us to win the league. <laughs> well, I don't think you can tell much from Liverpool. Um, you know, you pretty much can't get an easier start than that. You get to play on the Friday, so you get extra preparation time for your um, your UEFA Super Cup match in midweek compared to your rivals. Um, you play at home against a, a promoted club who decide they're going to try and play attacking open football against you. So, you know, that's pretty much here. Like, have a have a free three points decided after 25 minutes. Um, City were as City have been for a long time, which is very good on the, on, uh, at taking their chances when they have them and very um, clinical and cynical in stopping the other team from having chances, which I think, um, interestingly, interestingly, Manuel Pellegrini made a, a point of in his press conference about the number of tactical fouls that City had, had used, um, particularly in the first half, to stop his team. Um, I thought Tottenham were um, pretty decent, actually, um, given that they fell behind um, early and were put in a difficult situation. Uh, they managed to dig themselves out of that. I thought Tangi and Dombelli had a very good first game, um, particularly since Pochettino has been emphasising that he doesn't feel he's really at that stage of uh, adaptation process. You'd, 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 well. He is where he'd expect him at present, i.e. not at the top level of what he's able to perform yet. But um, I think his, uh, his ability to create chances with his passing was excellent and, and obviously he took uh, the, the critical goal to get them back into it. So, um, 
I don't think there was any great surprises apart from uh, perhaps from Brighton um, winning their first game under the new manager. Still a surprise to most Brighton fans, I can assure you. Um, <laughs> indeed. And a quick word on um, Mercy Pochettino. You mentioned Tottenham there, Duncan, and, and um, a good start for them, and especially in Dombali. Um, Pochettino said after the match that he disagreed with this early closing of the window in England because it gives an unfair advantage, uh, saying quite pointedly that why would uh, you do that when it allows clubs who are your rivals in Europe, and obviously Champions League or Europa League, to acquire your best players when you get no opportunity to replace them. Um, said that he would urge the Premier League to reconsider this, and while he agreed that uh, it perhaps is um, an advantage in some ways for clubs to have a settled squad, at the same time, and as we know um, from our chat about Paulo Dybala, uh, you don't name your Champions League squad or your play squad until after the window has closed in Europe. Um, I think you and I have both been quite critical of the Premier League stance on this. Uh, do you think Pochettino is trying to create a, a debate again um, ahead of next season's um, tra uh, transfer window closure? Pochettino obviously thinks it's a bad idea. Unless you can get the rest of the European clubs to do the same as the Premier League and close their own windows ahead of the season starting and, and ideally close them all on the same date, uh, one that suits the Premier League because it tends to start earlier than other leagues. Um, you're always going to be in this situation. Um, I think he makes a very good point. It is nice for the coaches to know what their squad is ahead of the season starting, but actually this system doesn't, as it stands, doesn't allow the coaches to know what their squad is going to be ahead of the season starting. What it, what it allows them to know is I'm not going to be able to buy any more players. So whichever players I have at the start of the season that I've brought in, that's it. Um, I'm not going to add any. However, I might lose some. Um, so you don't actually have that uh, definition on your squad that it's supposed to give you. Um, and I think it's, it's pertinent that we're talking about Pochettino here because he is one of the guys who is threatened by that late European transfer window. He clearly wants to keep Christian Eriksen. Um, Daniel Levy wants to sell and avoid losing him uh, next year in freedom of contract and was offering him for £80 million to Manchester United before the, the closure of the window, which Manchester United weren't going to pay. Um, Pochettino has not got as many players in as he expected to get in. If the squad is allowed to stand it is, as it is, with Eriksen remaining and guys like Serge Aurier as well, who's also um, pushing for a move elsewhere, remaining, then he will be satisfied. But if he loses Aurier, Danny Rose is another one that Tottenham are, have been trying to sell, and Eriksen, then he won't be satisfied with his squad. And I, I think he's putting a marker down there to say, this isn't a great situation going forward. But it's also not a great situation for me at the moment, and I want to keep um, my top player, Ericsson, in the squad uh, for the rest of the season because you haven't been able to buy me a replacement. I was prepared to let him go. If you got a replacement in, there isn't one. Therefore, um, keep him. Well, the talk of the weekend outside of um, the games or inside of the games, of course, uh, hat trick for um, Ryan Sterling, taking up to 50 Premier League goals for Manchester City. The wins, of course, for Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester City, Jose Mourinho, uh, Man City's B team being cited as potential champions, even though they're not even in the league. But, of course, we could not do the Transfer Window podcast without mentioning VAR because all of you are talking about it. You're talking about it on social media. You've been tweeting us about it. There were several controversial decisions made and some controversial statements as well, Duncan, by people who are advocates of VAR with regard to to um, its apparent infallibility. Yes, that's the... One, it's no surprise we're talking about VAR, is it? I mean, we've always said this is it's just a, a tool that produces controversy. So now, now we, not only do you question referees' decisions after the match, you question the VAR's decisions after the match, and you have an argument over whether they were right or not. What you're seeing from senior Premier League um, Ex-employees, um, I think also, you know, essentially employed by the Premier League, so 
Dermot Gallagher, ex-Premier League referee, is the, the specialist on Premier League television, refereeing specialist on Premier League television, who comes on after a game to give the referee's point of view, the former referee's point of view, and almost invariably comes down on the side of the, the referees on the pitch, which we've seen with most of these former referees. That tends to be the way it goes. But Gallagher over the weekend was asked about in particular the VAR and the, the Manchester City West Ham United game where we had two decisions that were about as marginal as you can get from offside decisions. I think um, it looks like the linesman on the field got both of them right uh, in terms of uh, going along with the VAR's decision. But they could really have gone either way. And this is the point. We can't actually, when, when decisions are that marginal, we can't actually see from the, the VAR footage, whether they are offside or not. Why? Um, because it's dependent on a, an operator essentially clicking on the screen to decide, one, when the ball was passed and when to freeze the, the, um, the video, and two, where, um, in this case, Raheem Sterling's arm ends um, and, his, uh, and his shoulder begins and drawing an offside line off the back of that, as well as drawing an offside line off the, the furthest, uh, the rearmost point of the defender. So you've got subjective decision-making by a video operator in the studio um, deciding whether it was offside or not. Um, you, you have Dermot Gallagher then coming after the game and saying, look, this is a great demonstration of why VAR is so good, because um, VR tells us to millimeter accuracy um, whether these decisions were offside or not. And a millimeter offside is the same as a yard offside, it's offside, which is true. By the rules, a millimeter offside is the same as a yard offside. So, offside. The question is can VR actually detect that? And there's been a lot of talk about this, and, and it's clear that the accuracy of the system is not there to the point where it can do millimeter decisions. Um, Andy Gray on um, BN Sports, there's a, the, they did a very nice analysis after that game and did about four minutes going through the video footage and getting a video operator to shift the, the point, the decision as to when the ball was kicked. And they had three different times in which the, the, the video was shifted on by a few um, milliseconds, all of which the ball looks like it's still on the foot of the, the player passing it. Um, so all of them, which could be called as the, the pass is being made and decide the offside. Depending on when you made that decision, Sterling was onside or offside, uh, using the, the video to assess where the, the line was. So the, it's just not that accurate. And I think um, people like Dermot Gallagher are doing football fans a disservice by telling them that VAR can make these decisions with such a degree of accuracy and that whatever the VAR decides on offside is always correct. It's simply not the case. And I think we've got a real problem in that we've gone away from the original implementation of VAR was it only intervenes when a clear and obvious error has been made to uh, a use of VAR, which is forget about the linesmen. They're irrelevant to calling offside. Um, keep, tell them to keep their flags down. It's a guy in a TV studio with a mouse and a video screen who's going to decide whether it's offside or not. And, uh, and they, are, they have, have been given control over that area of the game when the technology isn't good enough for them to be given absolute control in that way. And it causes a lot of additional controversy when uh, people question the decisions. Would you agree that the decision at Leicester versus Wolves was correct though, Duncan, regarding the handball with Willie Bolly, uh, given that the rules have been changed to say that it doesn't matter if it's accidental or not, the player, if there's a goal scored as a result of a handball or armball, then the, the goal must be disallowed? Yeah, was a, that's a correct application of, of what I think is a, a flawed new rule. And we, we discussed this in the podcast uh, at the time when the rules were coming in, that that hand, conditional handball rule has got huge elements, uh, problematic elements in it. And we saw it in the Women's World Cup. Um, lots and lots of controversial decisions during that. Um, yes, it was correctly applied, but I think... That is another decision that would not have been made without VAR. Um, 
it's even if you accept the rule, the new rule, as it is, and you say, right, you know, they've changed the rule, they've probably made a mess of changing the rule, but you've got to apply that rule. Nobody saw that during the game. Nobody appealed for um, a free kick there. Um, so is that a clear and obvious error? I don't think it is a clear and obvious error. It's just the, the thing is so, um, it happened so rapidly um, that uh, it, it's a simple error that everyone on the field made and didn't see a, a, a foul at the time. Therefore, should VAR be intervening? What you're saying is, any time a goal is scored, you let that video operator go through the goal and pick out a moment where there might have been a foul in the build-up to it. And, uh, and, and the chances are they'll find one. And, uh, and, they'll, uh, and they'll, they'll end up um, chalking goals off because of it. You know, you've got Pellegrini um, talking after the game about VAR and saying, uh, if you're going to use it in every corner, you will find four penalties in, in every game at both ends of the field because there are, there are that many fouls going on in the box. And, and the danger is when, when you start um, make, allowing VAR to intervene, it goes further and further, which is what we've seen with offside. We've gone from clear and obvious to um, VAR is flawless when it comes to offside. It's millimeter perfect when it comes to offside. So give all those decisions to the VAR operator. And remember, the Premier League in selling this to the public in its introduction this year has been the phrase they used was minimum interference, maximum benefit. I don't see them applying that at present. I don't see minimum interference here when they're when they're bringing VAR in to make the most marginal of offside calls twice in one of the very first games of the season. On the uh, just a footnote to the uh, Leicester Wolves game, I must admit I was disappointed with Nuno Espirito Santo afterwards. He looked like you know a bit of a sad bagpuss with his big beard, saying that. <laughs> It's it's it, you know when home fans, I Leicester fans, were cheering the no goal, and that's part of destroying the spirit of the game. Well, that happens when a keeper saves a penalty or when a penalty is not awarded or whatever. So I'm not sure Nuno's being entirely fair at the fans there. You will celebrate anything which uh, doesn't take a disadvantage to your team, quite frankly. Um, on the subject of VR, Duncan, we have to move on to heroes and villains and bring this uh, podcast to a conclusion. I'm going to go first because I think we know where you're going with yours. Uh, I'm going to say that my <laughs> hero for this week was the man who made the most impressive debut at Old Trafford. It was Jose Mourinho, the man who cannot, cannot be ignored, whether he's on the touchline or in the studio or even just walking down the street. Um, his opinions um, mean something. I think he was factually correct in the, the way that he described um, Chelsea's shortcomings uh, against Manchester United. And therefore, when um, Frank Lampard protested that he could not drag players out of the medical room, then that was a bit of a deflection on, on Lampard's part as to what actually Josie had said. Uh, I think he is always box office. Um, and as soon as he's back being box office, as he said himself, um, on the touchline, the better for the all of us. And of course, you did refer to it, Duncan, right at the top of the pod, that there are going to be tough decisions ahead. Uh, certain big clubs, including Bayern Munich, Paris Saint-Germain, um, possibly even uh, Real Madrid, and who knows, Manchester United uh, coming up. So let's see where things go for Jose. I hand over to you now, Duncan, for the villain of the piece. Well, get get ready for the abuse for uh, naming Josie Mourinho as a hero on the podcast. That's oh, I'm happy. My my tin hat's firmly in place. <laughs> as always, um, uh, my villains. I think a joint award: uh, Dermot Gallagher and uh, Mark Clattenburg. Mark Clattenburg uh, has written a piece saying um, that VAR proved that Sterling's shoulder was offside, um, therefore the decision to disallow was correct. And, you know, as I've just argued, VR can't prove things on those marginal calls. And the sooner guys like Gallagher and Clattenburg uh, who are pushing this line of VR being the solution um, to refereeing problems realise that the system that they are promoting is not 
as accurate and is not as flawless as they seem to think it is, the better. And really, if they haven't done the basic research on this, because you know this this is available, they haven't done the basic research on the accuracy of the system. You wonder why they are advocating it so strongly. Um, you know, they, they really should have a responsibility um, to find out what that system is capable of doing and what the problems are with it before saying that it should take over so many, so many elements of the job that they used to do themselves on the field. Good point well made. Um, Valerie, as we have um, renamed VAR on the pod, uh, is something we're all going to have to live with. So we shall see how much our Valerie manages to get right in the season coming. This is the end of this particular podcast. But of course... We love to keep the debate going with you guys um, on social media. And if you want to get in touch or indeed give us any views on what you've heard, please do so at Transfer Podcast. For us individually, it's at Duncan Castles. And for me, at Garbo SJ. Please remember that Wednesday's podcast is Your Questions Answered. So at this point, I'm going to take the opportunity to say, get those questions into us now. The earlier the better. And we hopefully can um, bring them into the pod on Wednesday. If you like what you've heard, then please do, as we always say, give something back. Get onto iTunes, give us a five-star review. It helps us to enlarge the community and keep things rolling forward. That's all for now. We shall see you through the transfer window on Wednesday. Thank you for listening. Yeah.